And what this industry's done as far as technology from that point to now is amounts to caveman days and going to the moon, is my belief. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Michael Kelleher, and the mobile patio is open. Today, I am lucky in one of the first of many interviews with someone in the industry that has insight, has been there, lives it now, and knows where it's going. Uh, In this particular case, we have Mark Helm, who has a long history of understanding the industry uh, from all aspects, and we'll get into that. And I think he has some opinions on, on where it's going. So, Before we begin, Mark, I want to thank you for the six years, seven months, and 23 days of your service in the U.S. Army. Um, Veterans like you are the reason we can do things like this in this great country. So uh, thank you, and looking forward to hearing you introduce yourself. Well, I'm so glad to be here, Michael. This is a wonderful opportunity for me to share some of my experience. Uh, You know, a number of years ago in 2012, I sold my reverse mortgage company and kind of retired to consulting. But what really happened after that is I made a very dear decision to me, and that was a decision to give back to the industry. So I went into consulting, not because I had to work, not because I necessarily wanted to work, but because I wanted to give back to the industry. It had been so good to me for the past 44 years that I've been involved in it. So with that, I've expanded everything in um, the mortgage industry you can do from being a loan officer to a branch manager to a regional manager, going to mortgage ops, going to servicing and taking care of loans from the time they got on the books to the time they went away as an RAO or a payoff. And uh, then strategically got involved in helping people develop and grow their mortgage companies so that they can learn a little bit from some of the experiences I've had in life and hopefully make their road a little less troubled than mine was as I was growing up in the business. From just being known as the reverse mortgage person, because your history is, it sounds like you were the pioneer slash titan that made it come about. But when you look at your history and and you were in service operations, acquisitions, even domestic, non-domestic outsourcing, which is becoming popular, I'm guessing you consult in that area. But do you have to fight everybody just assuming that a lot of the topics are going to be around reverse mortgage. And you say, I I have a longer history than that. And I can advise you in many ways. Well, it's really kind of funny when I, uh, when I sold my mortgage company and I started my reverse mortgage consulting company, it was reverse America. Uh, I get a lot of criticism from that name because it sounds sounds anti-American, but it's about making reverses part of the everyday stream in America. But what really happened was that uh, I thought I would stay 100% busy in reverse space. And that was a natural uh, avenue for me to go into. But, uh, and certainly not reverse America, because I did spend all those uh, years in the military and 18 months of that in Vietnam. So with that being said, I I really want to give back to my country. And one of the ways to do that is to help seniors. So I love working with the reverse mortgage product. But one of my longest uh, periods of time was at Bank United in Houston, which was a Louvre company, and then their ultimate purchase by Washington Mutual. I was thrown in the mainstream. I'd always been involved in mortgage ops and servicing to some degree and came out of production. And I got involved in that opportunity and I was managing all the systems for, for the company 
company. I was managing domestic, non-domestic outsourcing. I was managing all acquisitions integrations back when Washington Mutual was buying everything in sight. So I've been through all that growth pattern before. So uh, my most recent experience is in the reverse space, but now uh, nearly all my work is in the forward space. Uh, I have companies that provide services. I have an interest in a document company and a systems company and some other companies that provide services to the reverse industry. And uh, some of them are 100% my companies, but also have been really just focused on uh, optimizing mortgage operations and helping people get their Fannie Freddie and Ginny approvals, and in some cases, even getting their FHA and VA approvals. So I'm really core mortgage, period, but with a focus right now more so on uh, the forward business and reverse, but I still have the reverse business to draw upon if somebody wants to get into it. And I will introduce that reverse mortgage were applicable to the forward mortgage customers I'm dealing with to help uh, grow their book of business, so to speak, and serve more customers. And, and that's a long list. Uh, one question I have is the Luminary Company. For somebody younger like myself, what does that mean? I hear it all the time. Is that a way of, <laughs> is that a way of managing or is that a parent no. company? Well, Lou Ranieri is still in business. He's based out of New York, and he is known in the mortgage industry as the father of the mortgage-backed securities. He was the first one back at Solomon Brothers to create uh, private mortgage-backed sec- mortgage securities. And he's uh, most of us older people in it know his uh, name real well. I, working for his company, I learned a lot. He's one of the smartest men I've ever met. Uh, he certainly has made his mark in the mortgage industry, and uh, there's still a lot of people uh, – he does a business with a lot of folks and he still has a, a play in the industry. And uh, I, you know, I owe him uh, my 10 years at uh, Bank United, my five years at Washington Mutual. I owe to him because he let me be employed there and grow and develop with that company. And uh, I owe a, a lot to Lou and think one heck of a lot about him. And he's probably one of my, what I consider one of my mentors, just watching what he said and did in the industry and learning from that. What is your advice to somebody starting in the industry around mentorship or maybe somebody that's been in the industry for 20 years and, and maybe needs a refresher on the value of mentor, mentoree? Do you find the way it happens has changed with technology LinkedIn to, to find that mentor? Or do you think it still is organic from where you work or the, the circles you work in? Well, I think what's happened in the last 10 years, maybe the last 15 years, we've had enough growth cycles where all of a sudden we have very small companies not making a whole lot of money. And just like we've had for the last year, a bunch of companies just made bukoodles of dollars uh, and didn't have to do anything special to do that except be there and be able to hire people and find and hire underwriters, which has been a challenge, but they've done that. So I'm not sure the mentorship has been as good in the past 10 or 15 years as it was prior to that. Although I will tell you that uh, I talked to a bunch of people and one of the first questions I have about them, two of them, I asked them, I said, explain to me your operational culture. Where did that come from? Who were your mentors and get that? And when I find out, I find out that people who have done a multi-cycle, they basically picked up on those things from multiple companies that they work with and kind of built that together to give them the best process involved. One of the things that I do uh, through a couple uh, partnerships I have with uh, people that extend their business out at other companies, I do a, a kind of a coaching environment. And uh, I get the opportunity to uh, bring to management my experience and also the other people they can talk to that have unique experiences to help them build a bunch. So I, I think one of the things that uh, a guy I work with, uh, David Licken, uh, and, uh, and, and also some others, uh, 
when you bring it to the table, when you can talk to someone and say, I can give you the ABC, but I also have the ability to get the C, D, and E answers and, and, and bring you other people outside to add to this, because what happens is people end up having maybe 20 or 30 kind of mentors in a way, rather than just a couple, because we can bring so many resources to them. And I think that makes a big difference in our industry today. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, big fan of David Licken. I've actually been on his show twice, <laughs> all the way back in 2013. Uh, and back in 2013, the average person stared at their phone for 18 minutes. I know this because that's when we started the company. It, it's now four hours and 35 minutes a day. And even David has his own, you know, podcast app. And, and he, I think he's on board as well. Yeah, I was on that just like, a few weeks, few weeks ago. Yes, sir. Yeah. And, uh, and, and what a great show he has. So, so the mobile patio is about talking about something and feeling like nobody listens. So not saying nobody was listening to David in 2013, but he has a hundred thousand listeners now listening to his podcast. And he had a podcast before I always thought it was cool, right? But I don't think he realized how impactful, how cool, and how many people do what he does today, but he did it back then. So I didn't mean to bring that up, but since you brought it up, he is the perfect example of, of what the mobile patio stands for. Um, yeah, and he's bought the brightest and the best to his program and really has helped people gain information they just wouldn't just bump into in their ordinary mortgage banking life. Absolutely. Of Alan Polak on uh, the technical side, Alice Alvey has been there for mm -hmm. forever. And she's just, it's funny how you let him into your living room. It must be like um, what radio used to be like. Uh, I'm, you know, that's the thing our generation can't imagine. But at, at having a show where at eight o'clock you gather around and, and turn on the radio. In fact, most holidays, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll try and get a story out of my aunts and my father about that. So, do you have any favorite radio shows? Not anymore. I wish I spent more time listening to the radio, but uh, no, back, I did in the back, past. Yeah, way back in the day. Was there any uh, radio shows that stand out to you like an actual? like? No, not type? really. Not really. My parents used to listen to uh, very unique. My dad was a big fan of Jimmy Rogers. So anytime we could any, get any country station on that would, would have music of his, we'd love that. But uh, I, I certainly, Paul Harvey was one of my best, my most favorite, I think. Uh, and listening to him. I, I loved it. I felt like I learned something every time I listened to him. So that's the one that comes to mind the most. And he's the, he's the one who goes in. That's the rest of the story, right? Yeah, that's it. I'm Paul that's Harvey. It. Yeah, I, I know that one. I uh, loved his. And now for page two. <laughs> <laughs> did, We're dating did, ourselves now, Michael. <laughs> well, that you know, I'm I'm trying to make it where I'm bridging the gap between all this great new technology and the realm I'm in. You know, I'm I'm on the board of the Massachusetts Mortgage Bank Association, lucky enough to be the technology chair. But I'm I know very well the the landscape of technology. And I think many of us haven't navigated a true double cycle. So I think that's what I find intriguing. Maybe it's the old soul in me. You don't want to say it, but you must have a hunch that. We are making so many advances, Boyle's Law, and moving so fast in technology, but there must have to be retractions or a pullback in, not because it doesn't, doesn't make sense, it, just because the economics of it, it's going to go through a cycle, and it's, it's, it's what the mortgage industry is. It may be um, when you were doing acquisitions and integrations at um, 
Washington Mutual. Did you find like you had a great technology, but the, uh, the, the business market maybe pull, had you pull it back or, or something like that, or maybe some other place along the way? I've always been a believer in technology, but let me give you a short story here. Um, when Angelo Mazzello was the president of the Mortgage Bankers Association, he reached out to me. I'd already chaired the MBA Loan Administration Committee, and he reached for the National MBA, and he reached out to me and said, Mark, I need you to chair something for me. And I said, Angelo, what's that? And he said, I need you to chair the Technology Committee of MBA. Now, the Technology Committee had been in kind of in effect for a few years prior to that, and a good friend of mine, Jack Pierce, headed that up for a few years uh, but it was known as the automation subcommittee. It wasn't technology. So we had our first conference with me as the first chair of the technology committee. And we struggled, struggled to get 70 people to that conference. And Angelo came in and did the keynote address for it. And I did a presentation. We had 70 people. We had our breaks and everybody thought how great it was, what we we're talking about. And what this industry has done as far as technology from that point to now is amounts to caveman days and going to the moon in my book. I mean, we've changed that much. Now, I will tell you my my opinion about technology. Uh, we had the major service bureaus on servicing technology back in those acquisition days, and they made our life kind of easy back then. And uh, that was it pretty easy to get, do. But the process of taking looking at loans after we converted them one system to another and scrubbing them, was still manual. It was Excel spreadsheets and all kinds of things like that back when we were doing that. So I think the thing that uh, I believe about technology is it is good. I don't necessarily think you can overuse it as long as you use it correctly. And I think the biggest thing that's happened in technology in our industry today is where technology is used to check what a human is doing or replace the mundane tasks that a human is doing in the loan process. So any AI that we can use, any automated audits, et cetera, that we can use, all those things are going to better the product, make less errors, make the mortgage company more profitable because it's less costly. Nowadays, the technology is coming to market. If you come to market and your technology is going to cost more than the people to do it, it's probably not going to happen. And that's really kind of a shame because the technology in many cases can do the business better than the human, at least on those initial stages. So we got to be careful how we manage that. But I'm a big, big believer and supporter of technology in our industry. Yeah. Do you find like the front end pays for it all? Like the AI, let's say, and you say the QA, QC audit. I feel like the front end operation COO has to take it out of their budget at the underwriting and processing part. But sometimes I feel the savings is more in the sunk costs of maybe a repurchase or um maybe well i agree with you 100 percent on that because the especially the ai and processing and underwriting uh i've been on the back end in uh, a loan administration where we had to deal with all the repurchase requests whether they were origination issues or servicing issues and if you can eliminate a bunch of those with the gses that's a big deal that's a big deal because those purchases cost you tens of thousands of dollars on a loan, especially when one involved discrepancy and appraised value and things like that. So uh, I think it does pay for itself up front. I said, you when you look at the AI up front, you have to take a lot more consideration than just what it's saving in processing time. You got to look at the end product and expense on the back end. We have this clubhouse coming up here where I think you are going to get into that side of the world. 
what would be your advice here as you're, I don't know if you see the technology landscape, but what I see now is like when I first started, it was a loan officer, somebody in the industry had a neighbor that was an engineer or had an engineer background would come up with a product. And maybe you can even talk more about the one, the one or two you have, but now, when you go on Clubhouse, there are products that go through the Flagstar Accelerator, let's say, and they're byproducts of MIT, no mortgage experience. Um, often you hear, oh, I, you know, I came up with the idea after going through the mortgage process. It was the worst 45 days, so I wanted to solve it. They don't, um, they don't have any mortgage background. So like, where can, where can they and where should they go to school to learn how past the upfront experience, how the machine works all the way up to the mortgage-backed security world. And, and I'm yeah. in that boat. Like, where, where can I, where should I go to learn more before? Well, well let, me, let me say something. I will not disclose who it was you've talked about in the last five minutes. But in the last five minutes, you talked about a company I'm actually an investor in. It is a relatively new technology company. I'm an investor through a private equity firm. And the guy that heads up that private equity firm was the same one that revert, uh, would led the investment in my reverse mortgage company. And so later on, he asked me, would you like to invest in this company? And I said, and his other companies too, many companies in that fund, but that's one of them. And that, that company's done extremely well and they've built a product that can be used. I think learning about what's available out there in the industry is one of the hardest things that people have to do. But Somebody asked me, you know, we talked about mentors. So let me talk about a little bit about growth and development of people in the industry. There are opportunities that people need to take advantage of. I think you're doing that right now today with your involvement in the State Mortgage Bankers Association. I think that's a big deal in the conferences they have. The best dollars that I think a mortgage company can spend is sending people to applicable conferences for their business. And a lot of people say, oh, he's just going there because he's going to go to dinner with a bunch of people and go to a bunch of cocktail parties. But the people that really want to grow and develop in our industry are going to attend the sessions and listen to what's happened and ask questions. And we see a lot more of that now than we used to at these conferences where questions are asked. And let me give you a perfect example of that. When you, when you go nowadays and you look at younger people, my son's a good example of that. My son heads up uh, warehouse lending for a region of a major warehouse bank. And he was my capital markets manager in the reverse mortgage industry for a while. Well, you know, he's done he's done the mortgage banking, national mortgage banking leadership program. Okay, he did that. Uh, he's uh, got that AMP, AMP uh, designation. He's working on taking his CMB exam. Now, he's been so busy at his work, he hadn't had time to do that. But he could have been a CMB before he was 40 years old. He's going to be one in his early 40s now. But taking advantage of those things that are offered by national and state MBAs and by technology companies offering training about their product. Even if you, even if you don't believe in their product, need their product, or buy their product, that education is going to be invaluable for in your future because you can compare other things you're doing to that. And whether it's nice to go to a manager's meeting and say, I saw this great technology today that can do X, Y, and Z. And you explain it to people, and people are, have their eyes are wide open. They're saying, wow, you heard about that? It's all about reaching out and being involved. So I'm a big believer in being proactive and being involved in the industry and kind of being a sponge, absorbing as much as you can. And then you as the individual have to sort it out how you use it, but at least you'll have that information that you've gathered from those sources. Yeah, so it's take the extra time and, and learn your craft within your community, but understand that 
uh, a great on-ramp to the highway of a bigger world in mortgages is really, it can start at that state mortgage bankers association and work your way up to the national mortgage bankers association. And then inside there are different committees and they are different conferences and just find one that, that you really are passionate about. Right. I, I think that's the biggest thing. If you have passion and you don't have to fake it, then you'll find yourself looking at these technology videos. You'll find yourself, um, look, technology's hot, but as hot as it is, people need resources on compliance. People need resources on, you know, what's changing. Um, like the, like the clubhouse event we're having with, uh, maybe you can give a, a little sneak preview, but out of nowhere, Fannie Mae makes an announcement, right? I know that being part of the Massachusetts Mortgage Bankers Association, we, we had word that day and, and our leaders who have the time put it in a concise well thought out way that I can go and read it and then relay it and, and bring that knowledge base. Whereas if you didn't get that email, you might not know where to start or you might be two weeks behind. So <laughs> it doesn't have to be in technology. That's still going to be very, like that would be as valuable for a company to know how to handle that as a, as a great technology, right? Exactly. exactly. And I'm making a boutique business out of that. I mean, helping people do that. And a uh, perfect example is uh, what we're going to talk about the conference. We're going to talk about Jenny May. We're going to talk about where it came from, where it's going, what's happened to the changes in it, how you treat MSRs, how you treat costs, how you treat losses, all those. But the big focus for me is going to be on the changes in the Jenny May program that happened in December of last year, because they dramatically changed the parameters that they used to approve people as Jenny May sellers, issuers. And uh, it's, it's quite a bit different than it was before. And they're going to want to make sure you are for real mortgage banker if you're going to have Jenny Mae loans and there's certain benchmarks you have to make. And uh, we're going to discuss those in detail on the program. And I'm really excited about it because this is an opportunity to get uh, information out and hopefully a way it can be understood. I'm very passionate about our business and our industry. And I think if you're not passionate about our industry, you probably shouldn't be in it. But at the same time, things change enough that I'm a big believer in education. And one of the education things that's the best is sharing this experience that I personally have and can share what I've been through and working with a couple of clients for GDMA approvals and how the process works and things you can look to have and not have and things you have to cross your T's and dot your I's on so to make the process better. So I'm really excited about this opportunity and I think it's going to be a great program. If, if you're a, like, if you work for an independent mortgage banker, What's the primary role that should be showing up almost mandatory to this to, to learn? Is it the, the person who runs secondary? Is it the CEO? Oh, CEO, who would be the best? Uh, let's say they are um, uh, 100 loan officers shop to 300 loan officers. Mm, I think it, you kind of nailed it. It would be a, a COO slash capital markets person, possibly a CFO in some shops, but probably a COO uh, thinking about the growth of the company and it would be the capital market saying, if I get approved to do this, am I going to be able to use it? Um, so one of the changes on the GDMA program is it used to be that you had to use it within a certain period of time, but now if you don't use it in a year, you can lose your approval under the new program. So GDMA and Fannie and Freddie, they, they don't want people, here, here's the reality, and I'm going to change course here. There's always been a pecking order on approvals, and you could either get a Freddie or Fannie, either one first. 
but for years, Jenny May's uh, passing grade to be approval, you first had to have a Fannie approval. They kind of depended a lot on Fannie Mae's approval process to, to make sure they were comfortable to Jenny May approval. Well, now it's a little bit different. Everybody is looking for market share. And so the people are driving. So the rules are changing. If you get approval, they're expecting you to use it, not sit on it for a year, you lose it. But these there's two different kinds of companies getting approvals out there. And I hate to say this, but it's true. There's the company that's going to use it and sell loans and maximize the efficiency and the cost effectiveness of selling loans to the different programs based on the type. And then there's companies that are going to, yeah, yeah, we're going to sell some, but the most important thing is for us to have our Freddie, Fannie, Jenny approvals, because guess what? That makes us a more valuable company when we come to sell it or merge it, et cetera, in the market. And that is unfortunately true. Uh, you know, and Jenny May right now is the gold standard for everybody to have. It's the probably the most difficult approval to get now with the new standard. And it'll be the gold standard everybody's trying to get to say, my company has made it. I'm Jenny May approved. But Jenny May doesn't want that, I don't think. That's my opinion. Jenny May wants somebody that's getting approved, that wants to originate FHA and VA loans and put them in a good conduct and be a good Jenny May seller, service, or an issuer. And that's what they want. So they're not out there to give somebody to put a, a name of a, a vester approval to put on their resume. They're all about doing business with them, just like Fannie and Freddie are. And that's different now than it, major, majorly different now than it has been at some points in the last 20 years. Are there any indicators from maybe two companies having uh, their Gini approval and, and merging? So I, I, obviously, the theory is there's going to be a lot of mergers and acquisitions coming up as MBA predicted end of the third quarter, though the jobs report today, you know, through curveball, but by the end of the third quarter, 78% of refinances will be gone. Uh, there's still 40% of the people should refinance, but as somebody that's been selling mobile apps, my analogy on this one is I'd say there's still probably 60% or more of the market that doesn't have an app now, but with everybody that is obsessed with their phone and up to four hours and 35 minutes, right? Needs a chiropractor because they look down at it all day long. If they haven't done it by now and watching their kids and, or they say they don't need an app yet, but they're on their own phone all day long. If they haven't done it by now, I don't know the magic to get them to, to do it because they're going to say, well, last year was a record year and I didn't have an app. Same thing with whatever these people are doing in life. You know, last year was a good year. I don't need to save the $50 a month. So I think that 40% is like my prospects. Like it's great that it's out there, but if they haven't done it by now, I guess is, is my saying. So with that said, two companies have a Gini approval. Is there any smoke in there where you can tell as some of them start to merge that the, the merger and acquisition market is coming in the, the people that have set up their uh, their operations correctly will start to to work with. I don't say like I almost feel like it's work with. They'll work with the ones that don't and, and come together and make a better company. Well, I'm a I'm gonna give you three pieces of information. This first is I think it's a bad assumption if you got two companies that have a genuine approval that or or one company that has an approval and you're acquiring that company or merging that company that you'll be able to retain that approval because once you create a new corporate structure i think jenny may is going to look at it again 
Okay. Is that, is that so, well known or is that a great tip coming from Mark? That's a tip coming from me. I think that's the way they're going to do business because they're trying to do things. I, I got to I, I, I gotta tell you, I, I give a lot of credit to what Jenny May's done on their changes in December because they're they're wanting people that want to originate Jenny May business, that have the wherewithal to do it, that financially can build their net worth as they grow their book of Jenny May business, which is a requirement that they have that equity. Uh, they're looking for all the right things and all the right places. That sounds like a country Western song, doesn't it? Yeah, anyway. you know, that sounds like a Rogers song, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Anyway, so they're doing that the right way. So I think that uh, I think it's very important that people pay attention to that. And uh, I know of one company that was trying to acquire another company that had a Jenny May approval and the assumption was just made they were going to get it and maybe they will. And maybe they'll be able to keep it. But, you know, you, you just got to you need to check those things out before you assume that and do a merger acquisition. That's a call to Jenny May and say, what is your practice going to be when we acquire this company? What are we going to have to do to make you feel comfortable with us and things like that? And going back to something you said earlier, I got to comment on this. Yeah. I get that note on my phone every day about how many hours I spent on the phone. And I spent about four and a half hours on the phone. Surprising, but, right? Um, yeah, it's right in right in the line with what everybody seems to be doing and all. But the most interesting things that's uh, crippling in our environment today is uh, I've got two email accounts, and those two email accounts I get a uh, three hundred emails each a day. And uh, fortunately, uh, some of mine just delete. I mean, I, it's it's the same old same old. It's people we we all do business with and. Some some I'll look at, and I get some of them the same one, et cetera. But a lot of times, the uh, things I'm looking at are things I need to read and think about. So I found myself, I got two times that I do emails during the day now. I do them when I first get up in the morning, and I clear all my emails, and, I, and I'm up at 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night clearing them because I cannot focus on them during the day and do what I need to do. And I don't know of any way, I don't have spam emails, so... I don't know of any way to get rid of the emails I got unless I have somebody start clearing my emails for me and uh, picking out the thing. And then I'm delegating somebody else to pick out what's important for me. I'm not sure I want to do that. And I'm sure all of us are suffering from that to some degree right now. That's scary. Yeah, it, it is. And then even, I think even the text, the text message box for loan officers is starting to become the same mm -hmm. way. There's no filter between personal and business. Well, yeah. the patio giving out ideas. Um, yeah. <laughs> I've already done eight years of, of trying to push vision. So I, I don't mind giving them out these days. I, I don't know when, when I'm ready to climb another mountain. Uh, quick question on that. I think I have pack rat syndrome. So, uh, or at least you know, I'm a guy that doesn't want to throw away my Nintendo games yet, and I haven't used them in 12 years. I'm guessing that's why I have this email mentality that, that really stunts my my productivity. How do you you said you clear out your your inbox in the morning and at night? I sometimes just can't press that delete because I think I'll need to go back to it. I, what's, do you have advice for? Uh, well, let me clarify that clearing to me is deciding whether I want to read it right then or I'm going to save it. I don't delete all my emails. I probably retain about 20% of my emails because there's something in them I want to refer back to later. I want to be able to research it. Yep. And uh, and about once a week, I try to do as much as I can about allocating those to file folders so they're not clogging up my emails and uh, and all. But just because I say I'm clearing it don't mean I'm deleting things. I, I you know, I, I retain uh, some of the information. Yeah. That's some great like the file folder. I think that's what I was trying to get out of it. So that, you know, that's, yeah. a, that's a great way. Oh, I have file folders. I mean, 
it, I, I break down uh, the mortgage origination, mortgage servicing, acquisitions, outsourcing. I got file folders for every major thing that I do. And I'll just move those emails over to that folder. And then honestly, about once a month, sometimes twice a month, I'll go through my folders and I'll have some time and I'll pop my feet up in the recliner and I'm, I do the most of this on my phone and I'm going through and I'm checking the file folders and making sure I saved something that was important and all that. So, you know, you do those kind of things to kind of manage your time. Uh, I tell people, it's hard to believe to tell them this, but I say, they said, what can I call you? And I said, well, you know, I'm usually at it at 730 in the morning at the latest and I'm doing it till 10 o'clock at night. And you can basically call me or text me anytime. And I'm going to be pretty fast about getting back to you. And uh, that's me. That's not everybody, but that's me. But I'm also a grandfather, not a father. So I don't have little children at home and all that. So it it makes it work for me. And uh, and I, I believe in open communications and all, but it is time consuming. So I sometimes feel like my device is managing me rather than me managing my device. Yeah, it's built that way. They just released the fact that um, checking a phone is just like yawning. The <laughs> terminology behind it is called the chameleon effect. It actually affects a lot of different things, but the science is chameleon effect. Yeah. But it has now gone into the chameleon effect that if somebody around you checks their phone, there is greater than a 60% chance you will check yours without realizing well, it. Well, I want you to think about this. Walk through an airport. Everybody's on a cell phone. Airplane, bus, cab, and then children. Uh, my, my children are having the worst time with their children They've had to establish rules in the house. You cannot bring your cell phone to the table to eat dinner. You know, yeah, the young thing really, I have a daughter, right? And so I didn't have a flip phone till college, even though I look, I guess, young and then promote cell phones. I didn't have a flip phone till college. So seeing these young, I mean, they're on their bike with no helmet. I sound like an old man now. They're on their bike with no helmet, reading, reading the phone and I think the biggest concern is, and I do it too, I'll go to a mortgage bankers association event. You know, those vendors spend $50,000 sometimes collectively on the greatest things in the world and they'll have a concert. And rather than just enjoying it, I'm, I'm taping it. Right. And it's like, so I, you know, I don't throw stones in glass houses. I, uh, so I'm just going to take it home on a couple quick questions for you. And then okay. we'll, we'll call it. And I appreciate all this listeners out there. We went over because I was just enjoying the conversation so much. So I, <laughs> I was too. It's been great. So I pulled up an old housing why article of you from 2012. And since again, we're a lot about where you were then, where you are now, where you're going, just wanted to ask you a couple things. So like back then you said the greatest setback of our industry was Fannie Mae exiting the industry. Has anything set it back more since then, or is that still in well, that was the, by that? That was the reverse industry. Okay. Okay. And uh, Fannie Mae uh, decided they were the single place, except for private securities, you could re put reverses in. And then Jenny Mae came along with their reverse mortgage product, and Fannie Mae decided to exit it. And uh, that that was bad for us for a number of years, because everything we had done had been Fannie Mae. Now, has the industry covered from that? Uh, some degree it has, but the reverse mortgage industry has never been the voluminous industry like the forward industry. I mean, when you have a year and you do 100,000 mortgage loans in the whole reverse mortgage industry, that's a good year. When I started, they were doing 100, 125, and everybody thought that's going to grow like crazy. It never did. A lot of that's been the fact 
that reverse mortgages have some inherent losses on it. So FHA has been redefining the reverse mortgage program and over the years, and the program has made the product a little bit more restrictive to be able to qualify borrowers for or find borrowers who can use the product that exists. And, and so on that same, I'm guessing this is also from that, that same world. If you could change one thing about the reverse mortgage industry, it would be the functionality of tax and insurance defaults. Has anybody stepped up and read your article and yeah. done it? Well, HUD did in one way. Uh, HUD, in the underwriting process on a loan, uh, one of the companies I have does the 24-month lookbacks on, on uh, tax payments, which is required for the application process. They do about half of the ones in the industry, and I have a partner on that, and we've been very very busy company, especially the last couple of months, it's been very busy in the reverse mortgage industry. And uh, basically it's determining have people been paying their taxes on time because a reverse mortgage does not have an escrow account. So uh, a lot of people said a reverse mortgage needed an escrow account that never happened, but due to the underwriting process. And if you have a, a glitch in your history about paying your taxes on time, they can establish what we call a set aside in the reverse mortgage industry, where they take a set of the principal that you can eventually draw out and put it into account for a given number of years to be there as a buffer to pay taxes or insurance if you don't pay them, because the tax and insurance defaults were a big deal. The problem with reverses is this, your borrowers are 62 plus, many of them's only income is social security. When the last borrower dies, that's a default and the state can sell the property or whatever, or it can be transferred to HUD. Here's the problem. When you have a reverse mortgage uh, that you've originated and they're delinquent on taxes, a lot of time or insurance, a lot of times it's because one of the borrowers has died and they've lost half their social security income. That's not a real solvable situation. So the set asides early on mm -hmm. to protect the early default on tax on that because the money's there to pay the taxes and insurance. Do you think that the housing market where it's, just the way people are bidding now, right? And so you have a, like all of a sudden it'll go like up 80,000. I had a client the other day, CEO, sold his house nine months ago. And now nine months later, his neighbor sold it for 80,000 more. Now we didn't get into details, but it sounded to me like they were similar houses and that's just happened to catch a wave of the bidding war. Does that make, everybody doesn't know the exact answer right now, but how would you use reverse mortgage as a tool to, maybe wait a little longer to understand the market? Can it be used as a tool in a, in a market that's out of control uh, from a rising? Well, price? I think the reverse mortgage biggest value is for someone who is retiring, has a fixed income, mainly just social security and a very minor uh, retirement account because it gives some extra dollars that can be available for an emergency or help them live. They can do a draw out of it on a monthly basis to live on it. And I think that's the main uh, play it's there. We're in a crazy market day, and I want to make a comment about that. Uh, I have uh, firsthand knowledge of a property in Colorado that was bought three years ago for uh, around $900,000. Uh, that property went on the market this weekend for a million four. Uh, I have a friend that's calling me. He's been on Facebook about it, about a property in Florida. He says, I can't understand. There's property down here going for 40% more than they did, uh, you know, two years ago. Uh, we are certainly, for multiple reasons, COVID's a reason, uh, 
being able to buy construction materials has been ter- terrible in this country. Uh, the builders aren't building as fast as demand is. And of course, there haven't been, because of the moratoriums, any foreclosures or anything, which creates yeah. a large part of the market coming out there. So when you add all those things together, the supply and demand curve is just upside down. And none of us really know when that's going to change. That could last another six months to a year real easy out there. So I think we're going to see some property values that are going to be unrealistic. And I think that's a challenge for our industry because we're loaning on a value today because of supply and demand. It might not be a right value five years from now. Yeah, it is. When you look at like Memphis, it's 50,000 people and nine listings, right? Like that's, and that's the the problem. But I think the um, younger generation, we'll call it, uh, sometimes they, they need like analogies or they need to associate with something else. I don't know recently what has had a run on it. Cause it seems like everything has gone well, but you know, in 1907 in the twenties, you know, there was a run on the banks. And then I know in real estate, uh, I don't, I forget what it was, but it might've been like 87 and 92. It, I'm sure in some of these crypto coins at some point, they'll, they'll be a run. Doesn't mean they're going to go away, but they'll, by run, I mean, when you, you're chasing, right? So, uh, years ago, like in 07, could have listed their house for 2.1 million um, in a Massachusetts suburb and waited and waited because they thought it was worth more and ended up selling for a million. Mm-hmm. So it went from 2.1 all the way down to a million because when the run happens and you're chasing it, in the moment, when you look back, you, you don't realize it. Um, it's like in our finals last year, I, I'm a pitcher in softball and uh, it was a big game and I was just throwing strikes because in softball, you just don't want to, that's all you have to do. And we end up losing 25, 24. So I, if in hindsight, if I had known that I wouldn't have just thrown strikes, I would have thrown it high and over and had them swing. And there's no way I would have let up 25 runs, but in the moment, you know, it's going seven to six, eight to seven. It, and I think that's uh, my, my analogy is, there's a reason she didn't sell it from 2.1 all the way down to one. Oh, I, we just lost 40,000. We can't do it yet. Right. And then you lose another 30 and another 20. And so that's a run. I don't know if there's going to be a run, but when the run happens, I think there's going to be a whole generation of people that have never seen a run before. And it'll be interesting. Well, you know, I, I started in the mortgage business in 1977. I, that's where I get my 44 years uh, and been in it the whole time. And I've seen probably six to seven major cycles in that period of time. And I also bought a home in South Carolina when I went there to work uh, where I assumed a loan. I was glad to assume a loan with a 15 and a half percent interest rate. Remember those days? <laughs> those could be back. Who knows? We don't think of that right now, but um, there's a, there's a lot of turmoil on that, but I am worried about uh, the state of, uh, of, of even a Freddie and Fannie that, takes properties right now and they own those properties and they put them in their book and the the values inflated right now because of supply and demand and it could settle down. And when they start foreclosing on properties uh, in five or six or seven years, if some come to that, it could be a rude awakening for them. So uh, I, I don't know the answer for that, but uh, I know it's a possibility because I've just never seen values appreciate in Texas, Southern California, uh, Florida, Colorado, uh, Nevada, Nevada and Arizona are just crazy too. And so it's a, it's a, it's a difficult time for us to work through and it's going to be interesting to see how it turns out. 
I'm glad you got into the different geographical areas. Two final questions. One is a lot of loan officers are on Clubhouse. If you want to talk about the event we have coming up that Ralph Armenta put together and is quite passionate about, we have a, an all-star cast up there of knowledge that you've, I, I guess, well, it's going to be the first place you can really get access to all of it. Uh, first time in a long time since COVID came along. But there's what fascinates me about Clubhouse is at these conventions, like you said, the, the lenders don't always send their loan officers and maybe they hear here, they hear what's going on here. Maybe they should send a couple more, but loan officers are on Clubhouse. So they're going to get a chance to hear the conversations that go on at these conventions that usually require a sponsorship or some money. And they're going to get it for absolutely free, which is the movement of social media being a platform. A loan officer attending, can you give, um, in the, we always say, uh, the, the TV show, The Office, in the great words of Michael Scott, talk to me like I'm five. Just what you believe is going to be covered in this Clubhouse event coming up and why a loan officer should attend or, or what a loan officer should be looking for. I think loan, what's going to be covered in this uh, Clubhouse event for the loan officers would be awareness. Uh, I believe there's three major elements that a loan officer needs to conquer to be a good loan officer. I think that they, they need to be knowledgeable. They need to be really four knowledgeable. They need to be organized and they need to be uh, optional, meaning offer options to their customers. And last not but not least, they need to be tenacious. They need to not, they not have one phone call and give up on people. But you can't do any of those things without being knowledgeable. And I think coming to these uh, these kind of seminars, participating in them, what you're doing, you're seeing the industry from a whole new perspective than you had sitting behind a desk answering a phone or dialing for dollars, so to speak. And I think that's good for you. And as long as you continue to do that and grow and develop, you're going to understand the big picture. And as a, you understand that big picture, you can you become a more organized person, know which kind of customer you're going to go out. You uh, are knowledgeable enough to explain products. You're knowledgeable enough to provide the customers the proper options that somebody can have. Because you can use, a, give you an example, you can use, a lot of people don't know this, you can use a reverse mortgage for purchase if the people are old enough. It can be a purchase product too. It's not just a refinance product. And, uh, and the tenacity is important to me because that's one of my key words is tenacity because too many people give up too easy in our industry. If, if I hadn't been tenacious in the industry, I'd still be a branch manager somewhere. I would never have moved on through my career and done everything that I've done. So, and not to be in a branch manager is a bad thing, but I thought there was more that I wanted to give and more I wanted to learn. And so I just think you got to be, uh, show tenacity and and not only in your work environment, but in your customer environment, your knowledge environment, and all those environments going to affect you and make you what you want to be tomorrow. There was a great article on CNBC about getting to where you want to go. And there's some theories around uh, accomplishing the 1% and those actionable tasks add up over time, over time, over time. Yeah. So as a branch manager, if you just bring the tenacity to what you do and the education, you will get to where you want to go versus trying to say what you, where you want to go and hoping that it just through osmosis. Exactly. Exactly. Um, from that article, you said uh, one of the, the most valuable things your parents said, and I was going to ask you about this, but you basically have touched on all parts of it during this interview. So you said value hard work and respect people from all walks of life. Uh, talking with you, Mark, that's what I got out of this. And I hope the listeners got out of this. And I think it's no coincidence that your parents taught you that. And that's what I heard going through here. 
So thank you. If you have any final thoughts, you can take that question and, um, and I have final one, one, one final thought. Uh, my parents did teach me that, and I've done the best I can to impart that knowledge to my children. And I hope they're going to do the same thing with their children. And if we can accomplish that in life, this country will be strong and survive and continue to grow and prosper long after we're gone. And that's what I wish for. I appreciate it. Thank you, Mark. And thank you for coming on the mobile patio. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it, Mike.